0: Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are very thankful that your word, uh, which is above all earthly powers, does not depend upon earthly or human authority for its authority, for its witness, or its power, or its truth. But it is true because it emanates from you and it expresses your perfect will. We thank you, Father, that in calling us to follow our Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the way, the truth, and the life, we follow one who has triumphed over all the forces of sin and evil that would work against your church, that would work against your people. We thank you, Father, that in following our Lord, we can trust him. We can lean heavily upon him, knowing that he indeed is our true burden bearer that he is the one who has risen and now lives forever to make intercession uh, that we may draw near to you with confidence and boldness to receive mercy and to find grace whenever we need help. Father, we come to you now dependent upon your spirit, dependent upon your grace to hear your word and to practice it. We pray, O Lord God, for your strength We pray for wisdom, we pray for compassion, we pray, Lord God, that as we love you, help us also to love our neighbor, particularly, Lord God, our neighbor who has not yet made that profession of faith in Christ, has not yet come to experience the the joyous freedom of casting not only anxiety but sin upon the one who is the atoning sacrifice for sin, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for now the help of your spirit, both in the preaching and in the hearing of your word, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. When I was uh, a young pastor, raw and just starting out uh, in North Dakota, um, the pastor of the Assembly of God Church took me under his wing and became my mentor for the, the time that I was there. And I remember... Uh, going through a particular time, our, our family, um, I think it was a season in which everyone was sick at the same time. You ever had that? You have five people who are all sick at the same time and in various stages of illness. And I remember talking to my pastor friend, and uh, he, his voice, uh, if you ever heard him speak, he sounded a little bit, if you know the, Jack, the actor Jack Nicholson, he had that kind of voice. And he would say, well, sounds like you're going through a Romans 5 experience. And I said, what is a Romans 5 experience? And so he took me to Romans 5, and Romans 5 opens up with this marvelous uh, statement about we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through Christ. But then in verse 3 of chapter 5, Paul writes, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I think about that time, I think about that verse in regard to our text this morning because Peter is addressing his, his readers who are experiencing suffering in various forms, perhaps not physical suffering, physical abuse by the culture around them, but they are indeed experiencing some kind of abuse. It could be uh, verbal. It could be uh, being cut out from what's going on in the rest of society. Some of them may be excluded from not only social gatherings, but uh, business uh, deals that may be uh, turned away from them because they confess their faith in Christ. They may be treated just ill uh, in society in general. And Peter has been reminding him throughout that... um, Suffering is a normal part of human existence. As my friend Dean would remind me, he said, you know, the the only people who are absolutely free from suffering and care and concern are dead people. And for as long as we're alive, we're going to experience some amount of difficulty and pain and suffering. So if we make it our goal as human beings to pursue a pain-free, suffering-free life, we're actually pursuing the goals of a dead person. And in some ways, you could say spiritually dead people pursue the one who is a living God. So we understand that in pursuing Christ, we are indeed saying no to an old way of life and yes to a new way of life. And in saying yes to that new way of life, we will experience a certain degree of suffering, alienation, and pain, whether emotional, physical, spiritual, or otherwise. Peter is reminding his, his readers, particularly in this text, that Christ suffered for doing good. We know that Christ suffered once for sins, but he suffered once for sins by doing good. And Christ suffered for doing good so that we could spend our time doing good by serving God. That's, I think, the, the big idea for... Uh, our message this morning for the text us before. So if we were to break down verses 1 to 6 of First Peter 4, knowing that our big idea is that Christ suffered for doing good so that we could spend our time doing good by serving God, we serve God then by following the example of Jesus, that we serve God by recognizing that we are dead to sin but alive to Christ, and we serve God by uh, enduring being rejected by the majority culture And then we serve God by trusting in the gospel as the power of God. So let's look at that first section there. We serve God by following the example of Jesus. Peter says, "...since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves or equip yourselves with the the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God." Peter's repeating himself here, which is what a good teacher does. We have heard this kind of language earlier in his letter. If you go back to uh, the very middle of chapter 1, Peter talks about preparing your minds for action. You're girding your loins, so say the older translations, because God has called us to a particular lifestyle, so he wants us to have this sense of being prepared, being ready. And I tried to think of what an example would, would fit this particular thing in uh, the, the, the one that I came up with, I think hopefully will, will work, uh, because some of you are uh, preparing for this even now, um, and have been for several months, that you know that every year on Memorial Day, um, people around the world, uh, including some members of, uh, of MGC right here, honor fallen service members by completing what's called the MRF Challenge. Uh, the MRF Challenge honors the life of Lieutenant Michael Murphy, who uh, grew up in Long Island, New York, in Patchogue. He died serving in Afghanistan in 2005. So the Murph workout, I think he was a SEAL. Uh, uh, You actually read his story in the movie Lone Survivor. It tells the story of Lucas uh, Luttrell. I think Marcus Luttrell is in that. But anyway, the Murph Challenge is a physical challenge. It consists of a one-mile run, 100 100 pull-ups... 200 push-ups, 300 squats, and another mile run, and it's all timed. But apparently, that amount of physical activity just isn't enough of a challenge. Because the workout that you're called to perform requires that you wear a 20-pound weighted vest or body armor. So it's fair to say that even the most physically fit participant in the MRF challenge accepts the fact that if they are going to participate in the challenge, they will endure a certain level of physical suffering. And they will prepare themselves for this by physical training and preparation. Every participant at the same time knows, particularly if you have done it before, and I know some of you have, There's also a mental preparation that goes on for the challenge because you know what awaits you, and so you prepare physically and mentally for that, which reminds me of a saying of my my all-time favorite New York Yankee is Yogi Berra. And uh, Yogi Berra played baseball in the 40s and the 50s and into the 60s, and he was famous for saying things that didn't quite make sense, but when you looked at them from a certain angle, did. Yogi was asked one time, what instructions, what advice he would give to young baseball players coming up, particularly those who wanted to hit well. And Yogi, in a true Yogi fashion, said, I just tell them that 90% of this game is half mental. In the same way, 90% of the Murph Challenge is half mental. Because physical fitness without mental toughness, the resolve to to press on while every cell in your body is screaming at you to quit, that separates those who complete the challenge from those who stop midway through. I think you can apply the same principle to following Christ. We can say something like this, that spiritual fitness without mental toughness, without the resolve to press on when every cell in your body including the culture around you, is screaming at you to quit. Separates those who continue to follow Christ and those who turn aside. Realizing, of course, that we have as believers a power residing within us through the presence of God the Holy Spirit that enables us to be armed, to be equipped, to be prepared both spiritually and mentally for the challenge that awaits us in following Christ. So just as every participant in a MRF challenge can expect then to experience a certain level of physical and emotional and even probably spiritual pain, they remember that 90% of the exercise is half mental. And inasmuch as following Jesus requires a certain level of physical preparedness, mental preparedness, spiritual preparedness by means of a confession of faith in Christ and of following Jesus by baptism, it also requires the resolve to press on. When every cell in our body, when everything in culture is screaming at us to quit, we remember the one who bore our sins to Calvary, who bore a cross after being scourged and brutalized all night. Peter knows the pain of suffering for following Christ. He knows that emotional pain. He knows the spiritual pain. Remember, this is the one who, through a fear induced weakness, denied knowing Jesus, yet, despite his denial, Christ forgave him. So, whatever suffering we endure for Christ and for his sake, uh, understand, says Peter, that Jesus has already endured it for our sake. That's where we draw the resolve. The Spirit brings that to mind. So, when Christ suffered once for sins, he suffered, certainly he suffered spiritually, he suffered physically, he suffered emotionally and mentally. His suffering then empowers us to, to follow him even when doing so results in suffering on his account. This is what Peter wants his readers to know ahead of time, that if you experience isolation at work, if you experience alienation even from your own family or from friends who no longer follow along with you because you have chosen by faith in Christ to separate yourselves from behaviors that you used to participate in, but now no longer do because you answer to a higher calling and you follow a higher standard. Understand, says Peter, it is normal for you to experience those things. You have done nothing wrong. In fact, it's a great sign that you're doing something right by being obedient to God and following Christ. You are designed by Christ as you follow him, says Peter, to go against the current of our contemporary culture because it's always going to be that way. That just as Jesus suffered in the flesh for doing good, so will we, and we must prepare ourselves so that. Whatever form that suffering takes, we think always you know, we're going to be dragged out physically and, and suffer some physical harm, but there's also the sense in which when you try to have a conversation with someone, particularly now in this highly charged political climate in which we live, it's very difficult to have a, a calm, if you will, objective conversation about issues of gender, about issues regarding sexuality, issues regarding abortion, what, what's your stance with regard to any social agenda that is being discussed. It's not even that you can't discuss it, but you're, you're told you can't even think that way. And so Peter says, be prepared for that. Understand that that is what is going to happen when you commit to following Christ. So pray for ways to be able to have those conversations. Pray for ways to be able to withstand being cut out. Even maybe let go from your job because you refuse to follow a particular standard that goes against what the Bible says is true and right and good and just and holy. He wants us to arm ourselves, to prepare our minds for action. We do that through Bible study. We do that through prayer. We do that through a fellowship with one another. We do that through asking others to pray for us as well. We do that through worship, by reminding ourselves weekly, if not daily, in times of personal worship, But certainly in corporate worship, we're reminded, as we have heard, that word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth, which means it remains, it stands firm. And that no matter what this world attempts to do to crush the truth, it cannot, because the truth is undeniable, it's uncrushable, it is as constant and as steady until the end of time and through time. It's as steady and as constant as the sun is. Even when we know the sun and the moon will dissolve when Christ returns, there is that constancy about it. So when, when Peter says, you Christ suffered once for sins, he then explains that when Jesus suffered for sins, he suffered totally and completely. We know that Jesus prepared himself for that. You read Hebrews 5, 7, and it says that while he was on earth, in his flesh, in a body. Jesus petitioned God with cries and pleas and prayers, entrusting himself, says the writer of Hebrews, to the one who would raise or save him from death. And in a matter of speaking, God did save him from death. Even though Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, God did not abandon him to the grave, but resurrected him from the dead. Peter says that is our hope. So everything that we do, by way of following Christ, everything we do by obeying him and enduring whatever resistance we encounter is based on the fact that we have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that as God raised Christ, so too he will raise us. And then we have a very difficult passage, even as difficult as uh, verses 19 to 20 of chapter 3. What does Peter mean when he says, for he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin"? That's a difficult passage, difficult verse to understand. And there are really two options here. One we'll dismiss right out of hand, because one says that this refers to Jesus, that Jesus suffered, he ceased with sin." but that would, to imply, that would imply rather that Jesus himself had committed sin. And those who take that view would say, "Well, what, what's really going on here is Peter is saying, "Christ suffered for sin, and having suffered for sin, sin is dealt with. Perhaps. But a better way to understand it is that those who have chosen to follow Christ and have suffered because of their sin understand the importance and the necessity of breaking from it completely. Think of it this way. If I were to show up on May 30 to participate in the MRF challenge, I mean, look at me. I may get one pull-up. I may run maybe a quarter of a mile before my body says, you're nuts. You haven't trained for this. You haven't prepared for this. You can't do this. Now, it would be one thing if I had trained for months leading up to that. I could at least say, well, I I guess I just don't have it now. But being ill-prepared for something like that reminds me that the next time I take on that challenge, I need to be prepared. I need to get myself physically and mentally and spiritually fit for that. The same thing applies to anyone who follows Christ. So if you try to follow Jesus but still try to live your old life, thinking that you can still do the things that you did, that you can engage in pornography and sexual immorality, you can do drugs, you can do those kinds of things because, you know, you have this understanding between God and you that you can sort of dabble in those things and still follow Christ because, after all, we have a time of confession every Sunday and the slate is wiped clean, and I start Monday fresh. Peter says, don't think that way because that's not how a follower of Christ thinks. And if you, will, you will suffer consequences for that. There's an alienation that happens, and if you continue long enough in those activities, you give evidence that you haven't truly May that profession of faith and that commitment to follow Jesus Christ. It falls in line with what the Apostle John says in, in his letter to 1 John. That no one who says they believe in Jesus continues to practice a lifestyle of sin. And if you do, says Peter, understand that God has his ways of disciplining you because of that disobedience. Whether it's an untrained mind or an untamed tongue... Or a heart that leans in the direction of the world more than Christ, God has a way of disciplining his children so that we understand, I've made a break with that. That's what baptism represents. That's why Peter talks about baptism saving us, not in the fact that it washes us outwardly, but it represents the fact that we have made a profession of faith in Christ and we are publicly declaring to, before God and witnesses, that my old life is dead. I've gone, it's gone under the waters of baptism, representing death. And I am raised out of those waters because I have identified with the death of Christ for my sin. That that death that I undergo by undergoing the water of baptism, that's the death I deserve to die. I deserve to stay under the waters of baptism. I deserve to drown there. But no, by God's grace, I am raised to newness of life to pursue him. That my heart, my mind, my body are his. So that I spend now the rest of my life doing good by serving God and no longer serving myself. If Jesus teaches us anything, it's that we must live for God in the present, knowing that he has already guaranteed us a hope and a future. We've been saved by grace, says Paul, Created in Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in them, to do them. Peter says we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To receive an inheritance, he says, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So if we must suffer for doing good, let us suffer for the right reason. Those who have completed, whether it's a MRF challenge or a marathon, do so because they know something awaits them at the finish line. It may be a rest, a well-deserved rest. It may be a hot drink. It may be a blanket to sort of keep them warm. It may be the embrace of of loved ones and family who have cheered them on the entire way, but they are running not only for the sense of personal satisfaction, but for the fact of being welcomed by those who have cheered them on. This is why we hope in Christ. We have this hope, this resurrection promise that guarantees us that the price that we pay in following Jesus now is the promotion that we give up because it means spending more time away from our family So we choose to stay where we are so that we may devote ourselves to our family or even to the service of Christ. For the relationship that we forsake, because we we understand that while our heart says, go that direction, the Spirit says, that is an illicit relationship. You can't have that. That's not honoring Christ. That's not honoring your husband, not honoring your wife, that's not honoring your sisters and brothers in Christ, and mostly it's not honoring God. Or that word that you keep yourself from saying when it's at the very tip of your tongue when you want to respond in a way that you know is not godly but oh, it's going to feel so good and you, you silence yourself. That is all done in the knowledge and the expectation that there's a reward for that. So we understand that following Jesus' example, when he was reviled, he did not revile back. He blessed when he was cursed. And so must we. We serve God by following Jesus' example. We also serve God by recognizing that we're dead to sin and alive in Christ. So in case we're wondering what sins uh, Peter wants us to avoid, he gives us a list. And I'm not going to go into depth with these. They're pretty self-explanatory, I think. Some of these are sexual sins. Some of these are sins that we would uh, consider to be more like social sins, excessive drinking and things like that. In any case, what Peter is saying here is you've already been told back in chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Let me give you a couple more reasons, as Peter says, to put away sin. First of all, you've been saved by grace. So that you have been saved to serve God, not yourselves. And second, you've spent enough time and energy You've wasted enough time and energy doing things that lead nowhere. Paul says this eloquently in in Romans. He says, in Romans 6, he says, what did you get for all of that that you participated in in your life before Christ? What were the wages that you were earning when you lived a life apart from trusting Christ and following him? Paul says, let me tell you, your wages, death. That's the payoff for a lifestyle that engages in these kinds of activities. That's the payoff. That's what you get. I remember uh, years ago, there was an old song, I think Johnny Cash used to sing it. Probably, I'm dating myself, bear with me. But I think the song was called Sunday Morning Coming Down. And the song was about, it was written by Chris Christopherson, who I think was heavily into drugs at the time. And the song starts out with Johnny Cash singing about the fact that he wakes up on a Sunday morning after spending all night drinking. And he hears the church bells. And he rummages through his clothes, he says, to put on my cleanest, dirty shirt. That's the life Peter's describing. That you could spend all of that time doing all of that nonsense. And you can hear the church bells ringing. But when you look to dress yourself, you're dressing yourself in your cleanest, dirty shirt. When Peter says you can be because you already have been dressed in the pure and brilliant righteousness of Christ. More than that, he says, not only do you wear that righteousness outwardly, but you bear that righteousness inwardly through the presence of his Holy Spirit. So why, why do that stuff that leads to nowhere? It's a dead end. Remember years ago, again, another movie comes to mind, I'm dating myself Uh, It was about uh, Jaime Escalante uh, who taught um, a bunch of high school students in East Los Angeles to do calculus so they could do well in the AP. I can't remember the name offhand. It'll come to me. But he's in a car with one of his students who wants to drop out of the class. And Jaime is in his passenger seat, and he's giving directions as the student is driving, and he's, he's rapid-fire directing, go left, go right, go left, go right, and the this kid's getting real nervous, and finally, he just comes to a dead end. And he says, he says, teacher, there's a dead end. And Jaime says, exactly. That's where you're headed, a dead end, if you drop out of my class. That's what Jesus says. You wanna go your own way? You wanna engage in this kind of foolishness and nonsense? Go ahead. Understand, it leads to a dead end, a really dead end, from which there is no coming back. I offer you life. I offer you abundant life. I offer you everlasting life. Follow me. Eugene Peterson, I I don't know the the book or article from which this is drawn, but he captures the futility of the lifestyle that Peter describes here. Peterson writes this, he says, The puzzle is why so many people live so badly. Not so wickedly, but so inanely. Not so cruelly, but so stupidly. There's little to admire and less to imitate in the people who are prominent in our culture. We have celebrities, not saints. Famous entertainers amuse a nation of bored insomniacs. Infamous criminals act out the aggressions of timid conformists. Petulant and spoiled athletes play games vicariously for lazy and apathetic spectators. Aimless and bored, people amuse themselves with trivia and trash. Neither the adventure of goodness nor the pursuit of righteousness gets headlines. I don't know when he wrote that, but he could have written it yesterday. Because it captures the mentality of a culture that is in, enamored with itself. The movie, by the way, we Stand and Deliver. Good movie. Understand this, too, in the context of suffering for following Christ. Given the, the hot climate in which we live politically and ideologically, when you choose to follow Jesus Christ, understand you are committing heresy against contemporary culture, and you will be treated we will be treated as heretics because we will not follow the dominant culture. Because it's no secret that we're living in a post-modern, post-truth, post-everything world. Name me one behavior that our society does not condemn. There isn't one. Everything and anything goes. And so here we are as Christians saying, no, no, no. Those things lead to death. Those things lead to alienation. Those things those things kill. But our culture says, we don't care. We'll drive right through that dead end sign and we'll go over the cliff gladly, merrily, happily, joyfully, because at least we get to do it on our terms. And Peter's, and Jesus just shaked their said, why do that? Why practice and live by cotton candy cultures? Once you realize the difference that Jesus makes, says Peter, you will endure whatever suffering is required to follow him. Because to follow Christ is to live out the promises that we made at our baptism. It is to commit everything to following him. And remember, baptism is connected to the resurrection of Christ. Everything that we do depends on the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, there's no church. Without the resurrection, there's no faith. There's no gospel. Without the resurrection, our faith is pointless. Without the resurrection, we have no reason to live now, and we have no hope to live hereafter. The good news is, of course, Christ is risen, that he is alive. And because he lives, we have a living hope, a hope that thrives among those who are committed to him. That's the good news we have to share. We can point out to people who are wasting their time doing foolish things to say, Aren't you just just tired of that stuff? Aren't you just tired of always feeling the need to do things that in the end prove fruitless and pointless? And in the end, joyless? We serve God by reminding ourselves that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. And then thirdly, we serve God by enduring being rejected by the majority culture. Peter says, with respect to this, Uh, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you or they blaspheme against you would be another way of saying that. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's going to judge everyone. We say that in the Apostles' Creed. There's a story that's told about uh, Augustine of Hippo. Uh, Augustine wrote confessions and uh, other, other treatises back in the early centuries of the church the story is told, you know, before Augustine came to Christ, he was uh, very promiscuous sexually. He was a, a sinner, uh, a great sinner. But after he came to follow Christ, he actually rose and became a bishop. Well, the story is told that he was walking uh, down the street one day, and a woman with whom he had had a, a physical relationship, an intimate relationship, noticed him. And he noticed her not wanting to be noticed by her, he bowed his head and he walked to the other side of the street. Too late, the woman recognized him. Augustine, Augustine, she said. But he did not look up and he did not answer. And she called him again, this time a little more volume, a little more urgency in her voice. Augustine, Augustine, don't you remember me? Don't you remember those nights that we spent together? Finally, Augustine looked back over his shoulder and says, Yes, I remember. But it is not I. He changed. So when your friends with whom you used to do foolish and stupid things ask you, hey, what's going on? It's, it's me. Don't you remember the things we used to do, the fun we used to have? And you say, Yeah, I do but that's not me anymore. That's not who I am. It's not what I do. I've chosen a new path, a new life, or rather someone greater, more holy than I has chosen for me a new and better and more fruitful and satisfying life. His name is Jesus. I'd like to introduce you to him. There's a sense in which The culture around us is not going to take kindly when we choose to follow Christ. Even if we say as little as possible about it, there is an inherent hostility toward those who try to live a holy life. Even the mere suggestion that there is an alternative to the lifestyle that is chosen by most of our culture, they will cancel you with malice and with a certain amount of pleasure. Just watch the news. What happened to Riley Gaines at the University of San Francisco State University is not unusual. Not even, just merely to discuss the issue is a threat. And soon perhaps maybe even to think outwardly or differently will be a threat. There is a challenge that we face as believers. They will even hurl at you the famous epithet, well, you're religious, I'm spiritual. And you say, well, let me show you 1 Corinthians 2, where it talks about how God reveals to the spiritual person the truth of who Jesus is. Guess what? That's me. I think you're religious because you're following a mentality, an ideology that runs contrary to the truth of Scripture. So yes, I am religious, but I am also spiritual because I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. That's not bragging. That's not being boastful. That's telling the truth. Because it's the Spirit through the Word, through the church, through the fellowship that we have with other believers that helps us understand what it means to follow Christ. When we begin to follow Jesus, don't expect your non-Christian friends or your former group of friends to applaud your change of lifestyle. They may, in fact, throw insults at you. And do so joyfully. But understand this, says Peter. They mock you, they mock God. You can't malign God's people without maligning God. That's why Peter ends that section by saying, look, they're going to have to give an account for their behavior just like you will before the throne of Christ on the day of judgment. The good news for you is that you can point to Jesus and say, all the sins that I have committed, he bore. Your friends, your non-Christian friends, when God asks them, who paid for your sins? There's no debit card in the world that's going to cover that. There's no bank account in the world. There's no lawyer, skilled enough in rhetoric and argument, who's going to get you out of that conviction. I like the way J. Ramsey Michaels, uh, former professor at Gordon Campbell says it. He says, the Christian may be called to account before an earthly tribunal. His enemies will be called to account before the tribunal of heaven. Those who ask ask the questions will have to come up with some answers of their own. We serve God by enduring being rejected by the majority culture. And lastly, we serve God by trusting in the gospel as the power of God. And Then Peter ends by saying, This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Very simply, what Peter is saying here is that the gospel was preached to previous generations. Even some of their closest friends may have heard the gospel and they have died. So even though they have gone the way of all flesh, because that's the, the penalty that we pay for Adam's sin, that we die physically but are raised and born again spiritually. So Peter is wanting to give his readers and us the assurance that though our loved ones who believe the gospel die, they are even now alive. It's why uh, uh, Jesus, when he's asked about um, the, the dead, he says, You know, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice it says he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not was. It implies that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. There is a, a sense in which Peter is connecting uh, what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4 about those who have died in Christ. We grieve, he says, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope because we know that those who have died in Christ are with him. And when Christ returns, he will bring those who have died in faith with him and we will join them and be with them forever. There's also that great line in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul talks about the fact that we will not all sleep, we will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the return of Christ. And then he encourages them by saying, understand this then, that your labor in Christ is not fruitless. Because your non-Christian friends will say, well, what good does following Jesus do you if you die like the rest of us? And your answer is very simple. Right now, I'm away from the Lord because I'm alive in my body. But the moment I die... This body gets planted in the ground, and that part of me, which is spirit, ascends into his presence, awaiting for the day when this body that has decayed to dust will be raised, a spiritual body, and I join, they are joined together, my spirit and body, and there is a time of worship that goes on forever. That's why I have hope. Because when you think about it, I mentioned this last week, you can't live without hope. You can't live without hope. When you get married, some of, some of us who are married, you get married in the hope that you don't get married and think, well, I give us three, five years, and then we'll see how it goes. No, you get married in the hope that that relationship will last until death do you part. When you are accepted, uh, when you take a job, and you're hired, you don't say, well, I'll give it a couple of months, see how it goes. No, you take that job in the hope that it will provide you with an income that will enable you to support yourself. And if you have a family, support your family. And if you have an extended family to support them, and you take that job in the hope that you can advance in that job, taking on more responsibility and using the gifts and talents and intelligence God has given you. You don't serve in that capacity without some sense of hope, some sense of reward. Because what you hope for now determines how you live now. It determines how we think now as well. You can't live without hope. I've been listening to a series of sermons by uh, Tim Keller on hope, and Keller defines hope, and I'll end with this. He defines hope as this. He says, hope is a life-shaping certainty of something that hasn't happened yet, but you know will. A life-shaping certainty of something that hasn't happened yet, but you know will. Our resurrection in Christ hasn't happened yet, but it will. How do we know that? Because Christ himself is risen from the dead. Because as Christ suffered for our sins and was raised from the dead, so we who suffer for our faith in him will now also be raised with him. So Christ suffered for doing good so that we will no longer spend our time wasting our time doing stupid things, but we will spend our time doing good by serving God in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for challenging us and then setting uh, before us Christ as our pace setter, the one who indeed has gone before us. And so we ask for the help of your Spirit to help us fix our eyes on Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, Because he knew, O Lord God, what awaited him in your presence. And so may we, Lord God, with similar endurance, put our trust and hope in you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.